Hello to all of you unconventional conventionists. Welcome back to Rocky Talkie. This is a Rocky Horror Show where we talk about anything and everything Rocky Horror. My name's John. I'm Nikki. And I'm Aaron. Woo. So uh, we are officially out of Halloween season. Yeah. Let's go. How are we God how bless. are we handling being out of Rocky Horror Halloween season, everybody? What did we do this week? I get I'm... asleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally. <laughs> I am not doing well. I'll tell you that. Okay. It's weird because uh, my cast is first, third, and fifth Friday of every month, so it's not weekly anymore. But because of Halloween, we had like a Friday and a Saturday show every week and sometimes also a Sunday show. So since the first week of October, I've done like at least two shows a week until now. And I don't have a show this Friday. And I don't know what to do with myself. Like, what do people do on Friday nights? Mahjong? Mahjong. That's what I do. I don't like I really don't know what to do with myself. I am. I've been keeping busy. Like, I've been productive. I have this new friend, Joey. Uh, We've been we've been besties for like 20 minutes and they just joined cast. Um, so we've spent like the past three days consecutively together. Like we just keep hanging out and having sleepovers. We're going out to dinner after I finish recording. Very excited. Aww. Yeah, it's so swag. We're actually like reviving so well. But like I literally don't know what to do. Like every day I'm like, Joey, Joey, what are you doing today? Because it's like without Rocky, am I even a person? <laughs> uh, we all ask that question. What do you do without Rocky? Wait for it to start up again. <laughs> no, literally like... I, uh, I I came to that realization on Friday because I had a I had like a bunch of kids from my high school come to the show, uh, which is weird. It was weird. It was very weird because I was like, this is my safe space. But they were so swag. Like they were so cool. Um, but I was sitting there and I was like, yes, this is what I do every week. And they were like, oh my god, we'll come back next week. And I was like, don't. We won't be. Here. No, you won't. Like what? Do, what do I do next week? I was like, do you want to maybe like I don't know. You want to come, o- come over? We can like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to do with myself. Help. Nikki, Nikki, there's always a Rocky Horror Show somewhere. You could drive a short two and a half hours and go see Rocky Horror in wherever the fuck they've got a show. So yeah. yeah, thankfully, I actually am going to Atlantic City this weekend to Ooh, vend at that. NJ HorrorCon with FNS. I'm very excited. Wait, that's just Rocky. You're just doing Rocky still. Shut up, Aaron. Okay. He's not yeah, wrong. Yeah, that's what I thought. No, John, not you. You don't get to speak. You don't get to speak. Oh, okay. Now, Aaron, be a good boy and tell us about your week. Uh, well, unlike you, I have uh, not been sitting around waiting for Rocky. I have been <laughs> actively doing things to get more Rocky shows. I'm not in charge. Uh, yeah, me neither. Uh, supposedly. But no, no, it's been a super fun week. Uh, we've been we've been lining up stuff uh, that's going on for for the next next couple of weeks. Um, so you know, New York Rocky, we're getting back at it. We're getting as much as we can. But non Rocky related, what I did this week, I was sick in bed. Yeah, I mean, yeah. oh, not COVID. Hey. Everything's good. Everything's good here. But boy, I uh, I was not feeling well for most of the week. I was uh, down and out of it for a bit, and, uh, you know, I'm just happy to be up and about and, uh, you know, able to get out and do some stuff, go out to go out to meet some people and see some things and have some foods and, you know, just, just, just live my life. Just live my best life. Imagine living your life. Yeah. It's going to be me. <laughs> but, yeah, what have you been up to, John? Two words. Animal Crossing. Oh, shit. Animal yep. Crossing. All right. The Animal Crossing downloadable content released on Friday. So I have been doing absolutely nothing but designing houses and being in love with all of the new Animal Crossing villagers that they released. Would you say you're a bit of an architect? I am 100% I'm an architect. That's not even a question. I'm known for my intense Animal Crossing design skills. I will be famous. You mark my words, folks. It's been incredible. The new update for Animal Crossing has been absolutely incredible. It, it is, has been a very, very necessary change to the game. So it's been really fun to finally play the game that like made me want to start streaming mm-hmm. again. 
uh, and I can't wait to kind of continue playing it and meeting new people through it because the community is fantastic. So it's been fun. The update has been really cool. All of my friends are really into it, and I can't wait to keep playing it. That's awesome, right? When, like, when your favorite game that you've put hundreds and hundreds or thousands, probably in your case, of hours into finally comes out with something new and, like, it all feels fresh again, right? Yeah, and we're going to be talking about that in a couple of minutes, aren't we, Aaron? Ooh, I think so. Yeah, we do. (laughs) And with that, let's get started with our first segment. That would be global news. What it? What it really though? Have you considered what if it wasn't? I have considered that before, but I don't write the script. That's valid. Yeah. So first up in global news, guys. I know Halloween is always rough for Rocky people, but I think the UK stage show cast has had it the roughest of all. Oof. On Tuesday, hey. November second, the 2021 touring cast had to cancel an entire performance due to COVID within the cast. Ah. <laughs> Yeah, fucking yikes. That sucks. Yeah, it was a major bummer. The cast had just opened the Norwich leg of their tour the night before on November 1st. During that performance, they had to replace eight cast members with understudies due to positive COVID cases. Eight. The only members of the original cast who were able to go on stage for the November 1st show were Oreo Duba as Brad, Ben Westhead as Rocky, and Philip Franks as the narrator. At least we had our baby Ore Duba. You know how much yeah. I love me some Ore. Fuck, man. Talk about con plague. So on November 1st, they replaced everyone with understudies, and then they straight up had to cancel the November 2nd show? Is that right? Yes. Nope, I'm not going to say it like that. Yes. Yep. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, they did. Yep. But thankfully, the cast was able to rally and resume shows as normal on November 3rd and made it through the rest of their Norwick tour stop as planned. And that is awesome. Like, good for them. I'm glad that they did what they had to do. Keep everybody as safe as possible. Yeah, for sure. The, one of the side effects of this, though, is that the, uh, the broadcast that went out to all of the cinemas in the UK was this cast. It was the cast with eight understudies performing that got broadcast all over the UK. Isn't that crazy? Anyway, I just hope everyone exposed is able to stay healthy and recover as quickly as possible. There's more good news, too. The UK tour has added two new show dates. Plopped snugly in their lineup of theatrical runs at 20 more theaters from now to the end of June. New dates at the Palace Theater in Manchester from Monday, January 17th to January 22nd. And at Churchill Theater in Bromley from April 11th to the 16th have been added to their set list. It's always stellar to see the original show getting new show dates and spreading rocky cheer all around the big aisle of bad teeth. Oof. I don't like that. I do. We wish the UK Rocky cast the best of luck at all their shows and implore any of our across-the-pond friends to grab a ticket. Next up, we'd like to bring you guys back to the on-screen stylings of the Rocky Horror Picture Show for two exciting pieces about some of the original stars. That's right, because recently we not only heard about Susan Sarandon being set to star in a podcast remake of The Boxcar Children, we've also read that the Meatloaf Steinman musical Bad Out of Hell will soon have a run on the Emerald Isle in Dublin. Road trip, road trip, road trip. Let's go. I want to go. I really want to go. Plane trip, plane trip. Plane trip, trip. plane trip. (laughs) (laughs) But first off, let's talk about this exciting remake of The Boxcar Children, which our fearless leader Meg happens to love. And me too. I owned every single one of those fucking books as a kid. What's it like reading? Many of you will know about The Boxcar Children The book series, originally created and written by Gertrude Chandler Warner, featuring four orphaned children, Henry, Jesse, Violet, and Benny, and their many adventures with their boxcar. A what? A boxcar. A a boxcar. A what now? Like like on a train, Nikki? Okay, sure. Trains and cars are different. I know that one, Boomer. (laughs) But not planes and cars, apparently. Road trip! Road trip. <laughs> boxcar trip. Boxcar trip. Boxcar trip. As the story goes from the original 1924 book, the adorable 
little orphans create a home for themselves out of an abandoned box cart in the forest, but after meeting their kind, wealthy grandfather, they move into his estate, and he moves the box car to his backyard. Further books in the children's series feature the orphans and their grandfather confronting adventure and mystery in their own neighborhood and at various locations, and almost always the books find the children during their winter or summer vacation adventuring to their heart's content. Author Gertrude Chandler Warner was an American first grade school teacher and originally wrote the books to help her own pupils learn how to read. Writing her first book was a process of reading it to her class and editing it based on its classroom reception. I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. Many of her pupils spoke other languages, so she did her best to make the language easy to understand. So now it's a perfect series for kids learning to read, typically recommended for grades two or six, or if your name is John. (laughs) Although she wrote the first 19 stories of the series, it currently has over 160 titles with more coming out each year. And each book, no matter which author wrote it, has the byline created by Gertrude Chandler Warner. In 2012, the original novel was ranked among the all-time top 100 chapter books, or children's novels, in a survey published by the School Library Journal. She even has a museum in Putnam, Connecticut that was erected in 2004. (laughs) You said erected. (laughs) You can't say that when we're talking about children's books, Aaron. I'm pretty sure I can mention 2004 around children. I can't remember (laughs) anything before 2010. Let's move on to the meat of the story, this new remake that Susan Sarandon is starring in. I can't imagine that uh, old lady Susan is playing one of the adorable little orphans, no matter how deliciously youthful she might look. You've got it right, Erin. Susan has been signed on to lead and narrate the podcast. She'll be playing as a new character written just for this series, Grandma Alden. So unlike other series in the Boxcar Children universe, this podcast series will expand the origin of the Boxcar Children, told through the vantage point of Grandma Alden. The program chronicles the months before the Aldens are reunited with their grandmother, relying on nothing but their wits, resourcefulness, and each other. What the fuck? So Grandpa's just out? Grandma made all this money? Alright, sure. I guess it turns out that the real treasure were the orphans we made along the way. Oh my god. Each episode will be a one-off story set on or near the boxcar homestead in the woods, featuring the unsupervised ingenuity and resilience of the orphans that originally made the boxcar children such a success while introducing new fans to the series through a revamping of the children's origin story. Albert Whitman Media, that's the media subsidiary that's producing the series, is set to air 40 half-hour episodes of The Boxcar Children, podcast series for debut in 2022 on iTunes, Google, Spotify, and all the other major platforms. We wish Susan Sarandon and the rest of the cast the absolute best with the series. We're looking forward to hearing some episodes soon. Of course, that's not all. As previously mentioned, we also have some fun news about Meatloaf's musical, Bad Out of Hell, coming to Dublin. <gasps> road trip, road trip, road trip, road <laughs> damn trip. It. Ah! The hit musical will be coming to Dublin's Board Gaius Energy Theater in August 2022. I would say try saying that five times fast, but it looked like you had issues pronouncing it once. Featuring Jim Steinman and Meatloaf's greatest hits, Bad Out of Hell will run from August 30th until September 10th, 2022. Okay, hear me out though, okay? We we go to RKO, right? We have a great weekend, and then anybody that wants can get in the Rocky Talkie van, and we'll road trip, road trip, road trip, road trip. This sounds like a great idea. Thank you, I know. I've never had a bad idea ever once in my life. Oh, a few notable cast members returning for the Dublin run include Glenn Adamson, who is starting American Idiot, as Strat, as well as Martha Kirby, who is starting Grease, as Raven. Bad Out of Hell was well-received among critics and audience members. It even won the Radio 2 Audience Award for Best Musical at the 2021 Evening Standard Awards. It was also nominated for eight What's On Stage Awards, including Best New Musical. As we've mentioned before, Meat's album of the same name was met with unprecedented success, becoming one of the best-selling records of all time and shipping 50 million copies worldwide. This tour of Bad Outta Hell is dedicated to the memory of Jim Steinman, who unfortunately passed away on April 19th, 2021. 
Tickets for the show start at 21 euro and they go on sale this Friday, November 5th via Ticketmaster. If you're in Ireland and you're partial to the music silence of Original Eddie, get out of your house and into the Bourget Energy Theater, which we're certain that we are pronouncing wrong. The way I thought this show was in Germany the whole time. Don't want to talk about it. That's all for global news. Now let's mosey on down to community news. Meg, cue the transition. Community news. It always gets me every time I, I see it in the script. First up in community news, we here at Rocky Talkie are pleased to announce that after 46 years, the Rocky Horror Picture Show is back on the box office charts this week. Thanks to all the audience members who came out in droves to see the film over the 2021 holiday season. Disney has reported that Rocky grossed $250,000 over Halloween weekend, putting it at number 15 on the box office charts. According to industry estimates, the movie has grossed over $120 million throughout the duration of its run as the longest theatrical release in movie history. That's insane. I don't think I could have imagined a film making any sort of box office chart like this long after it's released. I mean, maybe Star Wars or something if they did a big deal like re re re-release but i mean it's bananas that we were able to get that much hype over something that's just a few days over halloween is this like the first time that this has like is this the first time that rocky has reappeared on the charts fox didn't release uh numbers from what i understand so So this is the first time we're seeing it yeah so we have we have no idea so i was gonna say like that's that's pretty wacky like post-covid rocky everyone was just like huh But, you know, big shout out to everyone who came out to see Rocky in a theater over Halloween weekend this year. We hope you had a ton of fun. We know we certainly did. And thank you for putting our bullshit back into the limelight. We've all missed being away, and this is a wonderful way to come back. And if you want to get even crazier, according to Tony Pazuzu, 46 years after its original release, the song Time Warp has officially entered the UK music charts for the first time ever. It made it to number 78 last week. And it jumped way up to 31 this week. Damn, Rocky be doing work in 2021. Good for us. And speaking of some awesome shit from back in the day that's only recently been revitalized, we'd like to highlight a recent community contribution from Carol Phillips, a former member of New York City's 8th Street Playhouse cast that is obviously very near and dear to John and my hearts, as it was one of the original New York casts that eventually led to what we know now, the New York City Rocky Horror Picture Show. Carol is a member of the 8th Street Playhouse Facebook group and just a few days ago was kind enough to share a whole bunch of photos from her time performing in Rocky. These were so much fun to look through. Carol is a Columbia, so she had lots of photos of herself in costume, as well as lots of fun photos of her and her friends dicking around during the show. And I've got to say, Sal Piero makes a gorgeous Janet. That man looks absolutely killer in a blonde wig. Getting to look at photos like this is always such a mindfuck because even though it was like 40-something years ago, they could have just easily have been taken like last weekend. Seriously. I don't know if that says about our community, but... <laughs> Artists, am I right? Costumes don't change, brah. <laughs> There's just something very comforting about knowing that nothing about our show is new. The cast members back in the 70s and 80s were still doing the same goofy shit that we do now. We're all still making fun of the same movie in basically the same exact way, just trying to have fun and put on a good show. These are actually some of like the best pictures of the outside facade of 8th Street that I've ever seen. Like, Oh my god. Yeah, because it ain't that anymore. Yeah, no. First of all, Sal Piero in a Janet wig and a mustache, everything. <laughs> the, I don't right? know who this Rocky is, but if she was 20 years old in 2021, we'd be girlfriends. Sal Piero's a stud. I love this crim. So cute. Want to kiss him on the forehead. I do want to say, like, in today's modern age, we have made really good strides with screen accuracy, and we all look absolutely incredible. But there's just something about Rocky Horror in the 70s and 80s. Maybe it's the cocaine, but they just it's always look immaculate. Like, right? I have, like, everybody that did Rocky Horror in the late 70s, early 80s literally looks straight off the screen. It's insane to me, especially because, like, it was so new. Like, how did they do that? 
it's because you could actually go buy those fucking fabrics in the garment district then. Yep. <laughs> I would exactly kill that. for just one day to like do Rocky in like 1979. Let's go. Road yeah. trip. Road, Road trip. trip. Road trip. You Road need a very trip. specific DeLorean to make that Tardis happen. trip. Tardis trip. Tardis oh, trip. I dig it. I love this. I love this. Oh, so that's much. a picture of Gale. Cute. Who's Gale? The magenta that's underneath the photo of the crim. Yes. She's on the um the She's audience fierce. participation album uh, oh, cover really? and the uh, participation book as well. Yeah. Do we know who the Frank is? Mm-hmm. They no. look fabulous. They're working it. Uh no, I have no idea. Could be Dory. That's not Dory. No, it's not Dory. It's somebody else. There was another Frank during those times. Dory was the only Frank. Wow. Wow. The disrespect shown. So many good Franks. No, I really love... I love seeing old photos. It literally makes my heart go brr. And look, some high-resolution pictures of A Street Playhouse tickets so all the eBay scammers have their work cut out for them. Yep. I feel like looking at old Rocky photos is also really surreal, especially for like community babies, because like people like maybe not people like me, but like people a little younger than me, like the 18 year olds that just joined Rocky cast for the first time. Looking at these photos, these people are your parents age. Like imagine like the fact that I'm getting on stage playing Janet and 20, 30 years ago, someone's mom was doing the same thing as me. Like, that's weird to think about. Like one day I'll be someone's mom and they'll be like, yep, that's my mom. If they're 18, <laughs> these people are actually their grandparents' age. No. Ooh, you're making it Oh, worse. wait, no, actually, I'm wrong. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. So this is like, this is like my grandparents' age. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, is that not crazy? Is that not as crazy to y'all as it is to me? I'm... Huh. I don't know. I've met a bunch of these people, and they're as cool now as they were then. So that, I'm just like looking at this picture of Columbia, like mommy. <laughs> sorry, mommy. Mommy, sorry, mommy. Mommy, sorry. The tickets were four dollars back in my day. Except how much were prop eggs? A cent? Probably. Remember, twenty-five cents for rice. So we want to give a big thank you to you, Carol, for sharing these amazing photos. We just love getting to flip through them. And if you out there would like to check them out, we've got a link for you in our show notes. And last up in community news, we have a video game announcement. Wait, wait, wait. This can't be right. Rock Band? Does anyone even play this game anymore? Oh, for God. fuck's sake. I haven't thought about that game in forever. <laughs> Why are we even covering this? It's not like we have, like, I don't know, like, the reigning rock band world champion in our midst or anything. <laughs> right, Aaron? Yeah, thank God. That would be awkward as fuck right about now, wouldn't it, Aaron? Okay, guys. You got me. Yes, I am uh, one of the uh, small number of reigning rock band world champions that exist. and And, yes, I... I am incredibly excited for this Rocky Horror music release for the game. I waited with absolute bated breath for the content to become downloadable, and I drove Meg fucking insane by playing Time Warp on a loop for just several days leading up to Halloween. Because if Halloween wasn't stressful enough, nothing's going to fix it like having Time Warp playing nonstop in the background. Love you, sweetie. Um, so yeah, anyway, Rock Band, uh, is, as a game, right, came out over a decade ago, uh, at this point, and they still, to this day, weekly release new content for you to download and play, uh, after you pay for it, of course, it's not free over here. They usually range in, you know, uh, all kinds of musical stylings, they do alternative and metal and soft rock and 70s disco and 80s thrash, you know, all this kind of stuff. Uh, very rarely do you get something like from a musical or, or a show tune or something, so I was blown away when i saw these come through uh the community submits songs uh to harmonics that's the company that makes the game uh to determine which ones they're going to release and like they always take community uh reaction so apparently enough people submitted time warp uh as a song that they'd like to see in rock band or maybe i hit that button about 500 times myself uh, <laughs> and, and that's that's how we ended up with it 
the charts are very good. Uh, there's, you know, uh, guitar, uh, bass, drums, and a vocal chart here. So whichever of your instruments you're so inclined. Uh, the bass part's actually super fun. I was playing through it, and I honestly had not heard some of this stuff in Time Warp before. I didn't realize that the, the bass part is slightly countersinked and just like, it was super fun. It was super fun to get to play through uh, these songs in a game that I absolutely love. Yeah, I'm coming over after after this recording, and we're going to play Time Warp until the cows come home. You're welcome, Meg. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, I'm down to play it some more. I, I already full comboed both of them, though, so, you know. I, yeah, not I to flex there. or anything, but I, uh, you know, I full pretzeled uh, Sweet Transvestite, so sorry. What the fuck does that mean? Like combos? Those are like the little pretzel snacks? Oh, shut up. <laughs> So for any of you like Nikki who are still down to rock out in your living room, uh, this DLC is all available now on both Xbox and PlayStation. If you're interested, hit me up in game and we can jam together. All right, now on to our next segment. Hold on a minute. Do you really think Meg is going to let you get away with not addressing the world champion thing? Absolutely the fuck not. That bitch takes every available opportunity to trot your hot little ass out like a show pony, and we all know it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, dude, let's hear it. Tell us about the Rock Band World Championship thing. Oh, what? You mean the thing that, um... That I have this giant check sitting uh, here from, where we won ten thousand dollars. All right, that thing. I'll tell about that thing. No, so this was back in 2010. Uh, so over a decade ago, when Rock Band was relevant. Yeah, mm-hmm, exactly. Uh, <laughs> there was the big World Champion Rock Band competition uh, that was put on by Harmonix and MTV sponsored it, of all things, uh, along with uh, Harris Casino in Atlantic City. So you formed a band of four people, one for each of the instruments. Uh, our singer was Jen from the New York City cast that you know was a Frankenfurter for a very long time here. Also, uh, our friend Mo uh, and Darren Core a uh, close friend of ours. Uh, you might know him as the audio designer for games like Transducer and Bastion and uh, Hades, all of those uh, for Supergiant Games. He was our drummer. Uh, so we formed a band, went through the qualifying phases where that was all score-based, where you had to, you know, try hard through the songs and get the highest score possible. Uh, we were able to do that because we have no lives. And uh, then they paid for all of us and all the other bands to come on down to Atlantic City. And we did a live real-world competition over three rounds, over two days, uh, to determine who was the world champion. All of the scoring for it was partially based on how well you did in the game, but a big part of it was based on your costumes and your stage performance. So, having two Rocky Horror cast members, uh, we were more than well qualified at those two (laughs) things. Uh, It was great. We did uh, Walk Like an Egyptian for one of our songs. Uh, All of us got fully painted gold. Darren uh, shaved shaved his chest into a little onk, like an Egyptian onk. I dressed up as a mummy uh, from head to toe, which you uh, you might notice sounds a little familiar for uh, Rocky fans out there. Ah, yeah, it was a pretty easy, easy costume to put together. And we did walk like an Egyptian for our first song. Did very well with that one. Moved on to the second round. The second round was you pulled your song out of a hat. And you had to kind of uh, just improv to figure out how to play it. We had obviously rehearsed like absolute crazy people. So we knew almost all the songs. Uh, but you had to match your costumes to something. So uh, what do you do when you need random costumes that you don't know exactly what they're going to match? You just go to your closet, open it up, and you pull four floor show costumes out of it. So all Amazing. four of us were dressed up in full Rocky Horror floor show costumes. Uh, Jem was dressed in her Frank floor show costume. And we went to the, the to the scoring booth, we took the song out of the hat, and we got a Kiss song. So that worked out pretty well. We ended up playing Detroit Rock City, nailed that shit. Uh, most of the feedback from the judges was about how well our costumes matched our songs, which shows that they clearly did not understand the rules of the competition. <laughs> and yeah, we moved on to the final round. Uh, we played Pat Benatar's Hit Me With Your Best Shot. We were all dressed in like... 
80s uh short shorts like like workout outfits like tight shirts short shorts we had knee pads on so that we could do like slides across the stage (laughs) and uh it was fucking hot it was so much fun at one point i slid up to jen and she slaps me across the face a few times like it was we 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 really got the crowd going um it also helped that the being in atlantic city most of our friends from new york came down uh we printed up t-shirts and handed them out to everybody so like we our band was called ruffle mao r-o-f-l r-o-f l-m-a-o yeah 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 it it wrote itself with a big picture of chairman mao on it probably wouldn't fly now but it was super fucking fun uh so we won that we won ten thousand dollars uh promptly went and spent a thousand of it at the craps table uh, that did not go as well as you would hope. It was so much fun. It was so much fun. MTV was there interviewing us during the whole thing. They were going to air a whole uh, a whole special about it. That ended up falling off. I don't know, probably because it was boring. And then uh, they never hosted another Rock Band World Championship again after that. So uh, we are the reigning Rock Band World Championship. How old were you at the time? Uh, I would have been like 24, 25, somewhere in there. All right, I got I got one to eight years to live up to that. It's not that hard. Just become incredibly good at a video game, spend about fifteen to two thousand hours in it, and um, then rely on a bunch of Rocky Horror people to ferry you over to the uh, to the finish line. All right. Well, I just hit level a thousand of Bubble Shooter, and I have twelve thousand hours logged on The Sims Four. So, what can I do with that? Uh, apply for unemployment. <laughs> I see I was gonna make fun of you about this Aaron but considering I just I'm at our like 2100 of Animal Crossing New Horizons I'm pretty sure I can't make fun of you on it also I really don't think you can talk much shit because we all play video games for free and Aaron played a fake guitar and made $10,000 in lingerie so yeah, exactly. that's actually like that's so fucking dope like I'm jealous I wish I did cool shit like that yeah I mean oh oh and the other kicker uh we got to meet Ringo Starr Oh my god! Amazing. Yeah, there was uh, Ringo Starr was doing um, a concert that night. We got exclusive awesome tickets, which we immediately proceeded after we met him to give away to somebody else and then go smoke weed in the hotel room because we were <laughs> exhausted. But yeah, we gotta we gotta meet Ringo Starr. I have an awesome picture where he is got his hand on my shoulder and we're all just hanging out there. It was super cool. It was super cool. Absolute one of my favorite memories, and uh, so glad that it involved rocky in some way and also you know some friends that i'm i'm still tight with today so great times i'm gonna make fun of you about this until i make ten thousand dollars on twitch and then i'm never gonna make fun of you for it again deal yep well before aaron gets too big for his britches we've got another magnum dong to share with our listeners don't we nikki Guys, we haven't had a chance to do this segment in a while, but it is one of our absolute favorites. Way up there with Knack, community news, and global news, it's Big Dick Storytime. Oh yeah, give it to me, Daddy. Oh my god. This week, the Magnum Dong Award goes to a gentleman by the name of Jerry Tapley from Alabama, who (gasps) wrote into AL.com with this amazing story about a fun little interaction he had with everyone's favorite sweet transvestite. My boyfriend lives in Alabama. Yeehaw. Haw yee. Yeah. So Jerry writes, I was a small town kid in southeastern Massachusetts who went to Samford University. I saw that Rocky Horror was coming to the Beltwell Auditorium in Birmingham, and I bought a ticket. I'd seen the film, I believe, twice, and I was fascinated by it. And I thought, oh, this will be a lot of fun. Let's do this. The panic attack I just had that I thought that he meant he went to school in Massachusetts and drove to Alabama. I was like, wait, they're <laughs> they're next to each other? No way. Uh, I've literally been there. Anyway, because parking was so scarce there, especially after people started coming in, I would just drive into downtown Birmingham early in the afternoon and park my car near the venue where it would be convenient to leave. And I'd just go out and do things. And that's exactly what I did that particular day. I still vividly remember finding an incredible parking space that was not even a block from the auditorium. I went around to a few places and I decided to visit the Birmingham Museum of Art because it was right down the street. I'd never been. This is a weekday, if I recall correctly, so there's not terribly much going on in downtown Birmingham. Everybody who was there was at work. I went to the museum, wandering around. There were a couple of people in there. There was this British guy around as I'm wandering around. 
after talking a couple of times, I realized he was British. And you know, he mentioned a couple of things about what we were seeing, and we chatted, which was where we ended up walking through the entire museum together. And we decided, you know, why don't we go sit down and have a little lunch? We sat down and had a sandwich and chatted about nothing. We talked about everyday life, you know, why I was in town and things like that. He only asked that question towards the end. He says, why are you here today? What are you doing? You said you were a student, but you don't have school today. I said, well, I came up to see Rocky Horror at Boutwell, and he seemed to smile. He said, oh, I'll be over there too. We parted ways, we shook hands, and Tim Curry came up. It didn't really sink in at the moment. I'd seen the film twice before. I wasn't a huge fan at this time. I just kind of fell in and was interested in it, you know? It was only after I got there and I'm looking at the program and after coming back home that I began to think, oh, wait, oh, wow. I saw him at the museum and had that fascinating afternoon with him without knowing who he was and not even knowing until well after who I spent the afternoon. He was very nice, personable, kind, and gentle. It was a wonderful afternoon. You know, I, I like encounters like that where you meet someone, you find them interesting, and you end up talking in an out-of-place type situation. And that's exactly how it happened. It's this really bizarre, organic thing that happened that day, and I'll always remember it. Jerry, now 64, remained a lifelong Rocky fan. He's now seen the movie over 200 times and loves the audience participation aspect of the show. He noted in his interview that he believes the movie was a turning point for society, for young people trying to be rebellious. It was a way to be safe and independent, and it was a place to be yourself and to be able to go wild. Damn! Way to go, Jerry. That sounds like an incredible encounter. Hell yeah. We jealous as fuck. I'm so glad Tim was nice and just chilled with this kid for a while. It's always really wonderful to hear stories about celebrities you look up to being good people. It sounds like that was a really special interaction for Jerry. And it certainly sounds like Jerry has the biggest dick in the community this week. Good for you, man. If you'd like to read the rest of this interview, which you should, it's a lot of fun. We've got that linked for you in our show notes. And with that, let's move on to one of our favorite segments. That's right. It's a post-Halloween knack snack. Hold on, Nikki. I've got to check this candy in case anyone... Yep. Yep, it's exactly as I expected. Oh no, what is it, John? This Nutrageous Bar has a complete copy of the Rocky Horror shooting script hidden inside of it. Oh wow, that's so dangerous! What kind of a monster would do this? Make sure you check your candy, kids! You never can be too careful. That Nutrageous Bar must be some kind of TARDIS. Aaron! call things TARDIS anymore. That's so not PC. What? No, TARDIS, like bigger on the inside thingy from Doctor Who? <laughs> Doctor Who's. I don't care who you're talking about. That's a hurtful stereotype. But you know, since you've got this handy dandy shooting script copy right here, although it is a little smothered in chocolate, let's take a dive into it. We've referenced this thing in a lot of other episodes, but I'd kind of like to know a bit more about it in general. I mean, since it's right here... Why not? What do we want to talk about? So, how about the origin first? Before we dig into what it actually says, what the hell is this thing? Where did it come from? And obviously, how can all of our listeners go look through it themselves? That one's pretty straightforward, at least. The easiest way to take a look at the original shooting script for the Rocky Horror Picture Show is to go to rockymusic.org. It's in the documents section under movie scripts. You'll also find original play scripts, both the 70s and 90s version, the original shock treatment script, among other things. Rocky Music is a project curated by Sean McCourse. Wow, what a name. Oh my god. <laughs> Not his real name. I'm sorry. I have to, that's a, that is a name. I wish. Oh my god. I need to change my name. McCourse. McHorse. Rocky Music is a project that was curated by Sean McHorse over the last 20 years and archives a huge variety of rare multimedia related to Rocky Horror. Some of it you can find elsewhere on the internet, but a lot of content is exclusive to Sean's site. There's rare recordings, video clips, pictures, and of course, the scripts that we're talking about, alongside much, much, much more. 
cool. This really is an amazing resource. Though, rockymusic.org as a website is a little dated at this point. What do you expect for something that was created over two decades ago? You might have to hunt down a browser with a working version of Flash Player for some of this stuff, but it's all relatively acceptable. So where did Sean get the copy of the shooting script that's posted on there? That one's also easy enough. Uh, it originates on the old Rocky Horror News Group. You know, that email mailing list that the community used to keep in touch and start drama before social media made it way too easy to tell each other to fuck off. Someone just posted it there? That someone was Jason Allen P7A77 Faf. <laughs> in the editorial note that he added to the beginning of the document... He cites an unknown James for finding it, and Rena for handing it over to him. He typed it up and posted it for the world to see on October 10th, 1995. I'm sorry to derail, but neither of these guys could ever be James Bond. The name's Faf. Jason Faf. Or the <laughs> Is name's this how you judge McHorse. people? Sean McHorse. <laughs> I'm sorry. Anyway. I love that. <laughs> so where did that come from? I'm pretty sure that there's an earlier source for this specific copy. Uh, the shooting script was pretty widely distributed in the community before even the digital age. There are references to it online as early as 1993 by James Norman and other reliable community sources. However, we do know that in 1995, OSP Publishing produced a professional bound version of the complete shooting script to the movie. It was bundled with four black and white stills and four color photo stills, and it was made available through the official fan club. The announcement that the script was available for sale came from the spring 1995 official fan club newsletter. But don't let that brief historical note fool you. There were certainly copies floating about before, and there are certainly multiple variations of this script floating around out there. I'm sure there are collectors that could delve into the difference between each. But for our purposes, it appears that our Nutrageous Park contained exactly the same copy that was posted online in the mid-90s. How convenient! For us and for all our listeners who might be interested in learning more and want to go take a look for themselves. As always, links will be in our show notes. So we can't go through every single little thing that's different in here. There's just a huge number of changes from what eventually made it onto the screen. But this is definitely from very late in the process. The cover was dated July 1974, with pages and revisions inside dated between September to late October. Shooting began on the 21st of October, so this is probably very close to the version of the script that the production team worked with during the pre-production. Get on with it! Page 1. Immediately we're reminded that this is not the movie that we've seen. It starts off with the movie clip montage set to science fiction double feature. You've got little snippets of grainy scratched film, intercut with flashes of white screen and burnt celluloid as the clips from the movies that were referenced play across the screen. And then we cut to the church. This aligns pretty closely with the movie we know, except it's explicitly called out that Ralph shakes hands with the minister and slips him a $20 bill. We'd get a lot more people volunteering to play the minister if Aaron was handing out 20s dressed as Ralph. I'll do it. Bitch better have my money. I mean, maybe not 20s, but next RKOCon, Ralph might have to make it rain. Brad and Ralph go off to have their little chat, but here the dialogue is different from the film as well. We find out that science was never one of Ralph's favorite subjects and laments that Dr. Scott couldn't make it to the wedding. Brad reveals that Scott's new job took him away from Denton and that he and Janet had already gone to see him on their last vacation. Which, okay, that actually makes a lot more sense than what we get in the real movie. It's so weird that Brad and Janet get engaged and they're then like, let's go tell our old teacher. But if they were already close with him and visited him from time to time, it makes a lot more sense. After the car drives away, we are left, as we are in the completed film, with the American Gothic shot of Magenta, Riff, and Columbia, along with Frank as the minister. And then, damn it, Janet unfolds pretty much as we see it in the movie. All the cues and cuts are there, and the action with the coffin is spelled out, uh, though the fact that it's a child coffin is not explicitly defined. It's a child's coffin in the movie? Oh yeah, that shit is dark, yo. Krim's first speech goes pretty much as was filmed. Uh, it's called out in the script that he has glasses, uh, but that was obviously deemed unnecessary. And now we're at driving scene, and they aren't listening to Nixon in this alternate reality. Instead, it's explicitly called out that they have on a radio drama, Orson Welles' The Shadow. 
Ooh. Brad and Janet's conversation of the car matches the movie up until the car's tire goes flat. In the script, there's a bolt of lightning that strikes a tree, and Brad never mentions that he had a spare tire that he never got fixed. One less opportunity for him to be an asshole, I suppose. Glad that changed. Janet rolling her eyes is one of the funniest moments that Susan has in that scene. There's a light moves forward just as you would expect, with a couple of notable differences. For one, there's some light. In the finished film, the only light that Brad and Janet are drawn to is in the geodesic dome on top of the castle where the laboratory sits and the light in the window that Riff appears in. In the shooting script, the entire approach to the castle is described much more magically, with ground lights lighting up the path to the waiting castle and spatial distortion that moves Brad and Janet towards the castle magically. Also, the motorcycles, after passing the couple, disappear into a secret entrance in some rocks by the castle. And in a blink-and-you'll-miss-it descriptive moment, Riff's window that he appears behind was supposed to appear cell-like with bars. It is explicitly called out that Riff's face should be tortured-looking, setting the stage for Riff's discontent far earlier and adding a whole layer that was lost due to shooting constraints. Also worth noting, Brad's verse, you know, the, uh, I can see the flag fly, I can, I can see, see the, the rain. Fly. Yeah, that's all still intact here. It's widely believed that verse was actually filmed and just ended up on the cutting room floor somewhere, but who knows, unless it ever surfaces, we'll probably never know for sure. Also, instead of opening with an enter-at-your-own-risk sign, the song ends with Brad and Janet at a gate where they find a sign labeled Frank and Furter, Scientist. Spoilers much? Jeez. Science officer. (laughs) (laughs) From there, the criminologists aside and Brad and Janet's interaction with Riff at the door pretty closely aligns to the film. With one exception, Janet doesn't say, yes, it's raining. She says, yes, the rain has been very heavy. Good change. Certainly makes the audience participation line a lot easier. (laughs) Right? Heavy like your mama. Sorry. Yeah, got him. My bad. (laughs) And then Riff leads them down a flight of stairs and into the castle. Wishful thinking. That certainly would have been creepy, but you got to go with what the location provides, and Oakley Court has a lot of things. But stairs leading downward at the main entrance ain't one of them. And what do they find at the bottom of the stairs but magenta? Vacuuming the stairs. Vacuuming? Like, vroom, vroom? Vroom, vroom. It's plugged in and everything. Not even like one of those old rolly vacuums that your grandma used on like the outdoor patio carpets. Janet steps over the cord as she comes down the stairs. But otherwise, the dialogue is the same all the way through the time warp. But instead of the coffin clock that we all know and love, Riff instead begins time warp, standing by a set of mirrors that reflect his appearance to infinity. That could have been cool, but I like Mr. Skeleton a lot more. Also, that was much easier to paint than a million mirrors. (laughs) Right. And once Brad and Janet enter the ballroom, uh, they're not on the ground floor. They're on like a balcony that's overlooking the ballroom. And here we actually get a little morsel of information about the Transylvanians that we never even find out in the finished film. I'm just going to read this because it's super cool. In the body of the room are guests. They are the people Brad and Janet passed on the road. They are the Transylvanian secret agents, assembled on this special occasion from all over the earth. It is the annual Transylvanian convention, announced by an official banner suspended over the ballroom. Yeah, baby. Secret agents, baby. Groovy. Making me randy. Very groovy. So these aren't just guests and dignitaries and whatever, or weird hanger-ons to Frank's bizarre cult. These are the spies of the Transylvanian Secret Service that are stationed all over the globe who convene for this convention. So many layers we don't get in the finished film. Time Warp continues as you would expect until Magenta's verse where Brad and Janet try to retreat from the balcony, but I shit you not, Magenta blocks the way with her vacuum and, quote, sings with menace, waving the cleaner hose dangerously. This sounds like a fucking Mad Libs. (laughs) Oh my god. Can you imagine? Like, all right, all packed up for the show, got my dress, got my doily. Sweet, sweetie, where's my vacuum hose? I I need it for Magenta. No, not the real one. The one that looks dangerous. (laughs) right like are you fucking kidding me 
Also, like, imagine trying to source that off Amazon. Right? It's hard enough to find that fucking hairdryer. Ruth's got her work caught up to her. (laughs) The only other really interesting note about Time Warp is that Columbia is introduced as hanging out with the band at the end of the ballroom. Uh, Apparently, there was meant to be a live band playing the song at some point. Uh, But, uh, yeah, that, that went away. And that's Time Warp. Brad and Janet retreat out of the ballroom to the elevator where Frank is descending. The dialogue matches the film and Frank is revealed. And this is where the movie was supposed to switch from black and white to color, with Frank's red lipstick being the only splash of color until he gets into the ballroom, where suddenly it's revealed that the partygoers that looked like they were in traditional formal wear are actually brightly colored. And from there, Sweet Tea progresses as you would expect, until the very end when Frank returns to the lift for Come Up to the Lab. There, it is scripted to have interspersed cuts, like visual cuts, to the lab. One showing Rocky's birth after Frank says, see what's on the slab. A second one, a cut to a, quote, subliminal flash of lovemaking after Frank says, shiver with anticipation. A brief glimpse back to the windshield of the car when Frank's talking about rain. And another flash of the wedding after he says, really to blame. Wait, a subliminal flash of lovemaking. They were literally going to just cut to some porn just in the middle of Sweet Tea. Like, fuck Fight Club. Rocky Horror did it first. Brad and Janet are then undressed, as we would expect, except instead of the Transylvanians all somehow clown carring it to the elevator, they stand around and moan as each piece of clothing is taken off. Aw, yeah, take it off. Imagine Mm. playing a transy and being just like, ugh, ugh. Yeah, get get her top. <laughs> like, so awkward. It. <laughs> oh. And then it's revealed that everyone gets into the elevator. Both the Transylvanians, Riff, Magenta, Columbia, Brad, and Janet, with Riff throwing two Transylvanians out of the elevator at the last minute to make room. How big of an elevator did they expect to have? That's like industrial elevator sized. Seriously? The beginning of lab scene matches the film almost exactly, up until Frank begins his speech. Tonight, one, 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 can you hear me at the back? Tonight, my unconventional conventionists. Unnecessary, but cute. I see why it was cut, though. And as scripted, Frank isn't snapping his rubber gloves during the speech, which also features more of the stage show dialogue than we got on screen. No, instead, he is cracking the bones in his hands. (sighs) Uh, no, uh, no, thank you. You also get a much clearer Frankenstein reference here, with the intention being that the water tank bubbles and boils as the colored liquids are added in. Is it soup yet? <laughs> uh, at this point, yes. <laughs> it is indeed soup. The whole creation bit goes a lot quicker in this script than it ended up on film. Shame, it's such a boring part of the movie. Which brings us to Sword of Damocles, and with the exception of the criminologist's verse still being scripted, plays almost exactly the way it ended up in the final movie. A brief scripted line after asking Brad and Janet what they think of Rocky, uh, that actually makes the Charles Atlas reference more clear that was eventually cut, uh, goes, He carries the Charles Atlas seal of approval, and he didn't even have to take the lessons. Not like anyone really gets that reference now anyway. Sure don't. There's a bit more interaction with Riff, Magenta, Columbia, and the Transylvanians in Make You a Man. Uh, They sing some of the lines. They bring Rocky his weights. uh, And Frank actually sings the whole, uh, he thinks, dynamic tension verse, that bit, directly to Brad and Janet. But otherwise, it pretty much matches what we all know on the film. Yep, and that brings us to Eddie, who bursts through the refrigeration door on a Harley-Davidson motorbike holding a Gibson guitar. A what now? A guitar! But instead of jumping right into the song, you get a brief exchange between Columbia, Janet, Riff, and Magenta that matches the introduction Eddie has given in the stage show, where Riff actually explains that Eddie is the delivery boy, and Magenta chimes in, his delivery wasn't good enough. Pizza! Right. That exchange happens in the stage show, like, even before Time Warp, but it was shifted here for this draft, and it was eventually cut from the film entirely. Hot Patootie unfolds pretty much as expected, though when Eddie zooms around on the motorcycle, it was intended for him to ride up and down the walls, a special effect that I'm sure proved too costly to actually implement. 
And we even get Frank after killing Eddie, adding a little tidbit of jealous rage. And so perish all those who reject my love. And then goes to Rocky to reassure him. Oh no, my little Adonis. You're much too beautiful to be destroyed. He had a certain naive charm, but no muscle. You get the second half of Make You a Man, then a button is pressed, and the wall opens to reveal the bridal suite. I guess curtains were just a lot cheaper. And Frank and Rocky exit, and we cut, as we do in the film, back to the criminologist to explain what the hell just happened. Janet's bedroom scene goes pretty much as expected. The pacing is a little different, and there's a cut to Riff and Magenta watching Frank seduce Janet before she asks, uh, promise you won't tell Brad? But otherwise, it's pretty much unchanged. Fuck with the monster comes up next. In this version of the script, Riff Raff explicitly releases Rocky from his chains before scaring him off with the cantilibra, which I personally like. It really demonstrates the mischievousness of Riff and Magenta and adds some sinister intent, but like, whatever, it's a small bit. Much like Janet's bedroom scene, Brad's has a bit more dialogue, a few more actions, there's a whole bit in both scenes about not wanting the lights turned on, but otherwise it goes as planned, with Riff interrupting their tryst to tell Frank that Rocky broke his chains and is loose. This next one was kind of neat. Instead of the weird quick cuts for Janet's, what's happening here? Where's Brad? Where's that right? It's actually scripted that she's saying that while lying on the bed in the style of like a true romance comic cover heroine. That would have been a really neat visual. Right? And it was meant to match Brad's look when he's shown in bed smoking at the start of Once in a While, also looking like a character out of a true romance comic. I had no idea that was supposed to emulate those covers. Like, that actually makes a lot more sense now. And then you get Once in a While. You've got some verses from Janet in there. The script actually bounces back and forth between Brad and Janet, her doing lines that explain what went through her head as she was fucking Frank. Literally... I'm engaged to Brad just the same as Betty Monroe was to Ralph Hapshat, but Frank's kisses overwhelmed me with an ecstasy I've never dreamt of before. Hot burning kisses. Mm, taco flavored kisses. <laughs> it's a little weird, and she clears up a lot of Janet's thoughts about bedroom scenes. She very clearly was into what was going on, and the entire monologue interspersed in Once in a While actually brings a lot to the character. It's a shame, as it never existed in the stage show and as it never made it into the finished film, we never get Janet's retelling of events from bedroom scene. Well, except in her police statement from the Crim book, but that's a story for a whole other podcast episode. So there's a criminologist scene in here that was cut from the film, briefly recapping Janet's exposition from once in a while before it cuts to the lab where Janet's screwing around with the tank and finds Rocky. Where she says one of the weirdest lines in the script that was cut to Rocky, Janet goes, Yes, there, you see, it's instinctive. This room is your womb. You returned here for one thing, security. A big pink tiled womb complete with elevator and a raised dais. So actually, it's not all that... Moving on. <laughs> Touch-up plays out basically like in the film. The blocking's a little different, like Rocky's laying down on the operating table that, well, doesn't exist in the finished film, but otherwise it matches pretty closely. As does whipping scene, and the reveal that Dr. Scott is on the castle grounds. There's some minor dialogue differences, but nothing really to write home about. Dinner scene begins as we see in the film, but conspicuously absent is the verses of Happy Birthday that Frank sings. Turns out, between this draft and the final version of the script used for shooting, they somehow made dinner scene even more boring. Good job, guys! Eddie's Teddy proceeds relatively unchanged, with the exception that instead of cutting back to the narrator for a bunch of the scenes with the crim book, Dr. Scott actually has a full scrapbook that's showing all these images, which makes so much more sense, honestly. I'd kind of kill to make a copy of it. You know, I might just do it anyway, like replicate the pages from the crim book into like a Dr. Scott scrapbook. Oh my god, I actually fucking love that idea. Yeah, you would. What? I mean, it's like a second little mini crim book, but just for Dr. Scott. Like, I want that. I need, I, I, I think I'm going to make that. Focus, Aaron. We're almost done. All right. So Eddie's Teddy wraps up and Frank pulls the tablecloth off to reveal Eddie's decomposing corpse. Frank and Janet rush off for Planet Schmanet as we see in their finished film. However, Brad's actions actually make sense. Instead of taking Scott to the elevator, he's wheeling Scott down the corridors chasing after Frank and Janet. 
So he isn't just ignoring that Frank is chasing his fiance around the castle. He's actively barreling after them, wheeling his mentor along for the ride instead of leaving him with the servants and Eddie's corpse. Wow, that, that makes a lot more sense, or at least some sense. It's a shame they couldn't film it that way because of, you know, the layout of Oakley Court. The dining room is on the first floor, and there's no real long corridors that they could chase down. That left them little choice but for Brad to wheel Scott straight into the elevator, which has the unfortunate side effect of seeming like he was just ignoring Frank chasing after his fiance. The beginning of Freezing Scene goes as expected. All the dialogue matches the film all the way through Freezing Columbia. But when Frank laments that even smiling makes his face ache, instead of going to his favorite red door, we have Frank lying down on the operating table where Magenta and Riff quickly come over to massage away his tension. The scene takes on a much less confrontational tone, and it's probably why it was changed. Though I do love the visual of Magenta massaging Frank's temples as she calmly asks when they will return to Transylvania, and upon his reply, she digs her fingernails into his neck, which prompts Frank to jump up and head to the elevator. And that's pretty cool. It probably plays better just having Magenta angry the whole time, but I would have liked to see the interplay between them a little bit more. And that brings us to Floor Show, which plays out as we see it on film. Up until Frank is revealed for whatever happened to Faye Ray, where we would have gotten a giant 20th Century Fox logo behind him instead of the eventual RKO Tower. Also, instead of having the swimming pool visible from the beginning, it was supposed to be revealed by opening doors on the floor. The only remains of this that exist in the film are the stairs unfolding as Frank descends them. Pool scene occurs as we see it in the movie, though it appears to have been planned to have a lot more choreography and more of like a water ballet kind of vibe than pool orgy fuck fest. I don't think anyone's complaining about that one, though. The first verse of Kickline is also set to that, like, water ballet instead of just all being a kickline. Eventually, they all jump out for the finale kickline, but it's, like, just the last verse. I, I think it actually plays better the way it ended up in the film. I mean, it's certainly a hell of a lot easier to shadow cast. Pool scene is already hard enough. I don't even want to try to emulate a water ballet during Wild and Untamed Things on top of that. And then Riff bursts in, which, this is cool, guys. Apparently, Takeover is actually called Riff Raff's Receipt. And instead of coming in guns blazing, screaming his song, Magenta and Riff come in all slow clapping. Which, like, love that. Would have played a whole other vibe, but I love it. It really shows just how spiteful, bored, and indifferent Riff and Magenta are to the whole thing. I'm Going Home matches the film all the way up until Riff turns to kill Frank and Columbia dashes between them. No weird, like, half-spin-around-kill-the-girl-holding-light nonsense here. But that's a minor change. We get the same King Kong reference as Rocky picks up Frank's lifeless body, this time climbing the 20th Century Fox logo instead of the RKO Tower, but the result is the same. A final blast of the laser sends Frank and Rocky falling to their deaths. And here you've got the same ending we get in the film. Scott asks some questions, Riff tells them all to fuck off, and he and Magenta laugh and monologue before the castle blasts off. One interesting change in Riff's dialogue, he refers to the moon-drenched shores of our androgynous planet. Not their beloved planet, but that's a minor change. And then the castle blasts off, and here the movie would have changed back to black and white for superheroes. You get Brad and Janet's verses, the spinning world, turning into the globe, and then Krim's final speech. And that's it. So many differences. A few of these were already cut before filming began. In the annotated script alterations at the end of the document, we can already see the cut of the band during Time Warp, the stairway at Oakley's entrance being, like, replaced. All the references to the operating table were changed over to the tank. Uh, a bunch of the stuff that we talked about was changed in the revisions. It's in the script revisions that you can, like, really see the movie as we know it really taking shape. But honestly, I think it's a lot more fun to see what could have been, even if Richard and Jim Sharman and the production team already had a lot of it changed and updated before filming began. This was cute. If you ever want to take a look for yourself, gain some deeper insights, and see some of the additional changes that we glossed over, take a look at our show notes. We've got links to the script up on rockymusic.org and all the other stuff we've mentioned in this episode. And make sure to check your kids' candy this Halloween. Who knows, some nefarious ne'er-do-well may have snuck an entire copy of the Revenge of the Old Queen script into a bag of candy corn. Mmm. And uh, if that happens, please let us know. We'll, we'll eat the candy corn and then read the script. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we'll do it for you so you don't have to. 
<laughs> and that's our show. We want to thank Sean McHorse for having an excellent name, <laughs> Tony Pazuzu, and Carol Phillips for sharing all of their amazing content with the community. If anyone has a question they'd like us to answer on air for Nikki Asks a Question, or some community news they'd like us to talk about, or even a cool story to share with the community, we'd just love to include it in our show. Go to our website, rockytalkypodcast.com, and fill out our contact form to tell us about it. If you're enjoying Rocky Talkie, please help us out by rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the show. It makes the podcast more accessible to new listeners, which really helps us grow the show. And if you want even more Rocky Talkie content, check us out on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok, all at Rocky Talkie Podcast. We'll talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye. See ya. See you. I don't like calling them orphans when they're living with their grandpa. That feels mean. (laughs) Like, what is grandpa? Chop liver? Well, grandpa does fuck all in the books, so. Much like Grandpa Joe. He pays the bills. Fuck Grandpa Joe. Grandpa Joe. That fucking. Fox children can go work in the factory if they want to be ungrateful. It's 1924. They probably could. She'll be playing as a new character written just for this series, Grandma Alden. Okay, Grandma. Let's go, Grandma. I'm going to start using that as like a rallying call. Let's go, Grandma. Let's go, Grandma. (laughs) I can't tell if I just insulted Shania Twain or not. (laughs) Oh, God. All right, sure. I guess it turns out that the real treasure were the orphans we made along the way. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yikes. I dropped my mic. Oh, my God. (laughs) That's so funny. Oh, and I just threw my mic and scrolled away. Oh, my God. (laughs) That was so funny. Okay. A few notable cast members returning from the run. What? Run Dublin, run. Run Dublin, run. A few notable cast. See Dublin, run. Lie Dublin, lie. (laughs) So, you know when you just like talk and burp just comes out. No. Oh well, that's what happened. (sighs) Okay. Oh, that's me. I'm sorry. I thought this was you. Oh no! no, Oh, it is. It's still, it's still John. I just suck. So sorry. You're sorry that I suck? Yeah. No, thank you so much. Yeah. That means a lot. Go ahead. So I'm absolutely jealous, but is nobody wondering why Tim Curry was just in Birmingham, Alabama? No? No. Did he have have business there? Was Was he going to a Waffle House? What was he doing there? I want to go to a Waffle House. I don't want to go to a Waffle House. I want waffle fries. I don't want waffle fries. Oh. I don't know. I'm sure if I hunted through old issues of things, I could find a, a reason. But uh... You know what? You, <laughs> you get back to me on that, Aaron. But <laughs> aside from that, this is the second time on this show that you have made me act like I don't know what Doctor Who is. I didn't get bullied in middle school for three years to pretend like I didn't stand Donna Noble my entire childhood. Anyway. And you know it's really annoying because people like it's cool to like Doctor Who now. Yeah. Yeah, and that's so swag. I'm not annoyed. I love it. Everybody should like Doctor Who. And I like it. And I won't be silent. Meg cuts all of this out. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Doctor Who's Mick Horse. Mick Horse. Dick Horse. Anyway. Yeah, that's right. And our show. <laughs> <laughs>